This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 uh, this morning. One of the things that we've seen as we've been walking through 1 Peter is that 1 Peter is, is written to believers who are suffering a great deal for their faith. And, and one of the things that they needed to know, and, and, and the thing that we need to know when we're walking through trials, is that God can be counted on. He is unwavering. He can be trusted in all circumstances. It's a, a great word, and we're going to see it in this text again today. If you're new today, then we are walking through the, the book of First Peter. That's typically what we do here. We're usually kind of walking through a book of the Bible, uh, just verse by verse, and we've come to the fourth chapter of First Peter today, and we're going to look at the first six verses of chapter four, and we're talking about hope and time hope and time. This series is called Living Hope. And we're talking today about the use of our, of our time. And so we're going to see that in the text as we, we walk through. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word um, as, we, as we look at it uh, together before we, we dig into it. First Peter chapter 4, and let's look at verses 1 through Six. The Bible says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. <clears throat> for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. Carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. You can be seated. Now, Father, as we come before you now and prepare to study your, your word, we're aware that you've made us stewards, uh, stewards of, of, of our money and and our financial resources. You've made us stewards of, of our gifts and our abilities, the, the, the talents that you've given us. You've made us stewards of the experiences that you have given to each one of us. But Lord, you've also made us stewards of the time that you have given us. And, and you call us to use the time that you have given us wisely for your glory. And what we see in this text is that there's even a sense of urgency in, in the way that we use our time. And you have placed us in these times 
in these days that, that we are living in for your sovereign purposes in our lives. And we, we pray that you would show us some principles today from your, your word that can make a difference in the way that we regard the time you have given us, the way that we use the time that you have given us. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Dallas Willard was a, a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. He was a very popular professor. In fact, he won the faculty member of the year at USC multiple times. And Dallas was also a committed follower of Jesus. And many of his writings have made an impact on hundreds of thousands of, of people, including an impact on, on my own life. When, when Dallas Willard was dying of cancer in 2013, his close friend, John Ortberg, asked him, do you have any, any regrets? And Dallas Willard responded, I regret all the time that I've wasted. And when he said that, John Ortberg was shocked <laughs> because he knew Dallas Willard well. And Ortberg said, if there's any human being on the planet who has not wasted time, it's Dallas Willard. I don't think he'd know what a television was if it hit him on the head. He's either reading or teaching or doing ministry or mentoring students or praying. <laughs> but, but then John Ortberg, in reflecting on what his friend had said, he went on to, to write this. Ortberg wrote, redeem the time, the apostle Paul wrote, because the days are evil. I think Dallas regretted all the time he had wasted, not because he compared himself to other more efficient people, but because he began to see what life could be. I remember him saying that all of us lost souls allow ourselves to live in worry and anger and self-importance and pettiness when life with God is all around us. Wow. Peter is, is concerned about time in this text, isn't he? You know, he, he says that, that, that he wants us to live the remainder of our time in a certain way because we've spent enough time living in other ways. That theme of time runs throughout this text. The Apostle Paul was concerned about time. We see it in, in texts like Ephesians 5 and verses 15 and 16 where Paul says, pay careful attention then to how you live not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time. Because the days are evil. We could say that about our days as well, I think. <laughs> There's a lot of evil <laughs> that's afoot in our day, is there not? I mean, these are days of mass shootings and terrorism and racism and hatred, they are, are days of not only just senseless violence, but I, I, have, I have never in my own lifetime seen more brokenness 
in our culture than what I see today. Broken lives. People who are more connected than they have ever been technologically and yet never more disconnected from God and from one another. But these are the very days in which God has placed us on this planet. And and he calls us to make the most of our time for his glory in these days. We see some principles here in this passage that that can help us. The first thing that we see here is, is a revealing decision, a revealing decision. Let's check out what he says here in, in, in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, <clears throat> because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. <clears throat> Now, I know you're all wondering, what is he talking about at the end of verse 1 about being finished with with sin? That hasn't happened to me yet. We're going to talk about the end of verse 1 in in just a second. Um, But let's look at the first part here of verse 1. What is he talking about when he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. What he means here is that because Jesus suffered, Part of what you can expect as a follower of Jesus is to suffer. Now, now Jesus told us this multiple times. He said, if you love me, if you follow me, and if they've treated me this way, then then you can expect that you're going to suffer as well. And Jesus says things like this in John 15 and 18 through 20. Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If the master suffered, that means that if we're faithfully following the master, then we can expect that as well. Peter is going to say just a few verses from from now that we'll we'll look at in a couple of weeks in in, in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice. Rejoice. As you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, obviously, uh, in our culture today, in America, suffering for Christ is not what it was for these believers that Peter was writing to in the first century. And it's not like what many brothers and sisters are facing for following Jesus faithfully all over the world. Nevertheless, if you are faithfully following Jesus Christ and standing tall for him, then even in this culture, it's not going to be a cakewalk. That's what he's talking about here when 
in, in, in verse 1 when he, when he says, because Christ suffered, arm yourselves with the same understanding. If your Lord suffered, you know, don't expect that your life is going to be one of, of, of ease. Without, that it's always going to be easy to be a believer. But let's look at verses 1 and 2 together and, and talk about what he means here at the, at the end of verse 1 and, and, and in verse 2. We'll look at it all together. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Now, what on earth does Peter mean when he says, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin? Well, what he, I'll tell you what he does not mean. <laughs> then we'll talk about what he means, okay? He does not mean that any of us is going to reach a point in this life when, of sinless perfection. That's just not going to happen, okay? So he does it. he's not talking about that. Well, what is he talking about? What he's talking about is that a person who has made the decision that they are willing to suffer for Christ has made a very revealing decision about their faith. In other words, if a, if a follower of Jesus says, you know what, life's no longer about me. Life is, my life is no longer about me. It's going to be about God's glory. And I'm willing to let the chips fall where they may. And I'm, I'm, willing, to, I'm willing to endure ridicule. I'm willing to be ostracized. I'm willing to suffer. I'm even willing to die if necessary. Okay, if you have made that decision... Then, then what that means is that there has been a decisive break in your life. It means that your lifestyle is no longer going to be characterized by the kinds of things that he's going to talk about in verses 3 and 4. Because there's been a, there's been a decisive movement, a decisive break. In your, never going to reach a state of sinless perfection. He doesn't mean that. What he does mean is that if, if, you're, if you're so serious about your faith that you're willing to suffer for it, then, then you know, there's going to be a radical difference in your life and a radical difference in the way that you deal with sin. Tom Schreiner, in, in, a New Testament scholar, in talking about verses 1 and 2 says this, the commitment to suffer is evidence that they have broken with a life of sin. The commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life. A life that is not yet perfect, but remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers in the Greco-Roman world. And it is to that world that he turns in verse 2 and verses 3 and 4. So uh, let's look at a hostile culture. A hostile culture. Check out verses 3 and 4. Peter says, For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do. Now, when he, talks, when he uses the word Gentiles here, <clears throat> that's just another word for unbelievers. Okay? Um, pagans, right? Um, he says, There's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles cho cho choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised 
that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. Now, verse three really kind of gives us a flavor of, of what a lot of these early Christians had, had come out of. Because <laughs> when he talks about the Gentiles and when he talks about, he talks about unbelievers, he's, the people that Peter is writing to, that was their life. <laughs> that was their life before Christ. They themselves were pagans, right? And so when Peter says here in verse 3, there's already been enough time spent doing what the Gentiles do, he knows that the people he's writing to, like that's, that was their life before Christ. That's the lifestyle that they were coming out of. And it really gives you a flavor of, of what sort of, you know, pagan, unbelieving life was like in, in first century Greco-Roman culture, doesn't it? Um, you know, it was, it was sexually immoral. Um, the, the theater it, it was often pornographic and very sensual. Um, even even p- pagan religious life was tied in with things like prostitution and, and human trafficking and that kind of thing. Um, fidelity in marriage was almost unheard of. In that culture, it was, with, especially with, with men, with husbands, it was like almost expected that they were going to cheat on their wives. I mean, fidelity in marriage, just not the norm. So, you know, it was a culture of, of a lot of sexual immorality, and you, you see that here. Um, even even uh, the ways that they would amuse themselves in that culture were often tied in with, with violence. The uh, people would pack the arenas to see uh, gladiator fights. They, they would take slaves and, and turn them into gladiators that would literally just uh, uh, battle one another to the death. You can see that in the, the movie Gladiator. Um, and so, you know, even recreational life was tied in with a lot of uh, blood and violence and, 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 and death. Um, you know, and so the, the culture, a lot of, he mentions drunkenness here, lots of, uh, lots of, of abuse of alcohol in, uh, in first century Greco-Roman culture. I'll never forget the first time that I, I saw the ruins of a Roman, a Roman theater <laughs> the guide that was taking us around pointed to a room kind of like down beneath the stands and said, this, this room was the, the vomitorium. And I'm like, the what? <laughs> Did I hear that right? <laughs> yeah, you heard it right. Yeah, it was, that was the place where all these drunken people would, would go to throw up, I guess, concerts or, you know, a lot of Sporting arenas today—it's called the drunk tank, right? The, it was—it was around um, in the first century as well. I mean, it just gives you a flavor of kind of what these early believers, the lifestyles that they were that they were coming out of. Well, listen, not everybody was happy that they had come out of that. Not everybody was happy that they had become followers of Jesus and left that lifestyle behind. And we see that in verse four. Look at verse four. They are, he says they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood 
of wild living and they slander you. And some of you can relate to this. I mean, some of you can, can you know, what you know that when you became a serious follower of Christ um, and a lot of things in your lifestyle began to change, that there were people in your life that weren't exactly happy about that. They weren't celebrating that. Maybe some members of your own family weren't even happy about that. But in our culture today, we, we tend to be fairly individualistic, at least in the West. It, it's it's kind of more, it's more of a live and let live type of, of culture. What we need to understand is that in the culture that these early believers were, were living in, that one's lifestyle was so, so bound up with with family and even one's work life and community uh, life. A couple of telling quotes here from, from New Testament scholars. Um, Peter Davids says this about kind of the, the, the culture that these people were, were living in. Acts of abandon, lust, drunkenness, and idolatry characterize family religious celebrations official meetings of the trade guilds and civic holidays. In such a culture, there would be plenty of opportunity to suffer abuse for the name of Christ by refusing to participate. Another New Testament scholar, um, John Barclay, writes about sort of the way that, the way that these early believers would have been perceived by others, um, by you know, family members and others in the community. Barclay writes this. Family members who broke ancestral traditions on the basis of their newfound faith showed an appalling lack of concern for their familial responsibilities in the eyes of unbelieving family members. Christians deserted ancestral practices passed on since time immemorial. The exclusivity of the Christian's religion, their refusal to take part in or to consider valid the worship of any God but their own deeply wounded public sensibilities. Barclay continues, such an attitude toward the gods even branded them as atheist. Moreover, it was highly dangerous for even one segment of the community to slight the gods whose wrath was ever to be feared. Civic peace, the success of agriculture, and freedom from earthquake or flood were regularly attributed to the benevolence of the gods. <laughs> and so in this culture, <clears throat> not only would a, lot, would a lot of people think that these Christians were sort of, you know, letting down their, their families, but that they were letting down the community. They might even be the reason why it's not raining, <laughs> or it's raining too much, or they could get blamed for some natural disaster because they were seen as having ticked off the gods because they weren't worshiping the gods anymore. They were worshiping one God. So being a follower of Jesus is different today than that culture, but there's still some similarities. <laughs> Not everybody's gonna pat you on the back for being a serious Jesus follower. Right? Not everybody's going to be rejoicing about that. 
So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? How do you deal with human disapproval for following Jesus? Well, we need an eternal perspective. And that's the third thing that we see here in verses five and six, an eternal perspective. Let's look at verse five. Peter says, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. In other words, these people who are persecuting you, Peter says, they are gonna one day stand before God and give an account. Now, it's important that he say this because probably a lot of these Christians who are being persecuted for their faith, they were probably looking around at people who are persecuting them and thinking, you know, a lot of them, they're doing better than we are. (laughs) They seem to be on top and we're at the bottom. They were looking at some of their persecutors and, and say, they, on the outside, I mean, they appear to be blessed. Tom Schreiner, again, I think writes perceptively about this. He says, currently, unbelievers may have been enjoying the favor and privileges of Greco-Roman society. They may have been experiencing social advancement and the praise of their peers. They may have been the consummate insiders while Christians were on the outside. Present circumstances, however, are not the last word. No, they are not. There's a a story about a, a, a farmer out in the Midwest some years ago, and this guy... It wanted nothing to do with Christianity. He hated Christianity. He, he made fun of, 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 of believers. And, you know, he was the kind of guy, he would, write, he would write letters to the editor of this small town newspaper, just maligning Christianity, uh, making fun of Christians and that kind of thing. Uh, he'd be out on his tractor on Sunday morning and he'd see the Christians go by on their way to church and just laugh at them, you know. Well, October came along, and this guy had the best crop of anybody. I mean, far and away, the best in the county, and everybody knew it. And he reveled in that. He gloated in that. And he wrote, he wrote a letter to the newspaper uh, saying, you know what, faith in God must not mean very much if a person like me is prospering. And the Christian community, they, you know, they were, they were kind of quiet and restrained, but the next week in the paper, there was one little response to his letter. It was just actually one sentence. And the sentence was, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. <laughs> That's what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying to these believers, look, don't wimp out. Don't compromise. Don't wimp out because you want human approval and pats on the back for the next 30 years or whatever. You need to be thinking about the next 30 trillion years. You need to be thinking about eternity Check out verse six. 
For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Now, again, this is a a tough verse to, to understand, especially the first part of it. What is he talking about when he says, for this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead? Is he talking about the gospel being preached to dead people? No, it's not what he's saying. The key word here is now. The gospel is also preached to those who are now dead. He's talking about people who heard the gospel and responded to it when they were alive. And they decided to follow Jesus. And they decided that following Jesus was more important than winning human approval and praise. They decided to follow Jesus even if it meant suffering. And they are now dead. But guess what? That's worked out pretty good for them. <laughs> because they are now, they now live in the spirit. They, are, they have never been more alive. And they have eternity with Christ. While those who refused to live courageously for Christ during their lives and who rejected him have an eternity separated from God. Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says, It is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment. Yesterday, the, the sexual predator, the pedophile, serial pedophile, Jeffrey Epstein, committed suicide in his jail cell in Manhattan. And one of the things that I kept noticing yesterday on social media was that a lot of people were commenting and they were saying something to the effect of he got away with it. He's never going to face justice. Well, in one respect, I could sympathize with the people who were saying that because, you know, we, we, I certainly wanted this guy to have to face his accusers and to face the human bar of, of, of justice. It, it's also um, a shame because he probably would have exposed other really powerful, wealthy people who could have been involved in this, in this terrible uh, uh, ring, sex ring along with him, and it seems like that maybe that, that, that they've gotten away with it, that they will never face justice. But we know that's not true, right? That's not true. Because the Bible says no one gets away with anything. There is a God who sees all. He knows all. And the judgment that Jeffrey Epstein has already faced before God is infinitely more severe than anything that could be dealt out in a human courtroom. All of us, the Bible says, will stand before 
God? Which, which leads to a couple of questions. First of all, are you ready to die? Do you know Christ? Do you have a savior? But then the second question is, are you ready to live? How are you going to use the time that you've been given? Psalm 90 and verse 12 says, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Do you know Christ? And if you do know him, then are you using your time to live wisely for his glory? Let's pray. Father, we we pray that we would honor and glorify you in the way that we use our time. You have placed us in these days. You have placed us... um, in this place, you have, you have put people around us in our lives. You've given each of us opportunities to make an impact for you. Lord, you've placed us in this church to make an impact. Father, help us to impact our, our families, our church family, and the people around us who don't even know you. Lord, help us to to use our our time wisely. To use our our talents and our abilities faithfully. To use our, our financial resources faithfully that we might be stewards of what you have given us, whether time, talent, or treasure for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. 
If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.